and we can see that directly on the Fed balance sheet versus the interest rates as we go around. So, I mean, it's, it's all written on the wall. The Fed's the one doing this, but it means that money markets are taking on a much larger role as a depository institution for even much smaller investors than they used to be. And banks, which used to be Main Street, everybody has a bank account, it may get to the point in the next couple of years that everybody just has a money market account and it goes online and they do check writing or debit card doing on their money market position. This could be a massive shift or it could all go back to nothing. <laughs> How's that? Once more unto the breach, dear friends. Else fill the wall up with our English dead. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and welcome to another exciting episode of The Personal Wealth Coach, starring Jeff and, I'm sorry, Jake, Jake and Jeff McClure. All of our training that people hear us bragging about for so long on uh, how our practice on saying our names and this is an example of how no matter how hard you practice sometimes we can't say our own names it, it well often occurs when i'm adjusting sound balances and so on at the same time but uh, it, it's kind of like chewing bubblegum and walking you would expect people to be able to say their own names while doing other things so uh, i'm just saying we're we may not be fully ro well rounded in our name chanting ceremony so you think we're squared yeah we've got a we've got a couple of sharp edges or three okay. or four all right yeah this is the personal wealth coach as we've just said before we get started in talking to you about wealth coaching and economics and the world in general, we have a bunch of disclosures that we're going to say ad nauseum, um, and we'll try to do it in a way that is as different from other disclosures that you will see here or read. Um, can you smell a disclosure? I guess if it's too close to you. Uh, we're going to try to do it in a different way. Uh, we are the Personal Wealth Coach, which is the name of both this radio program, podcast, and a firm registered with the SEC to give fiduciary investment advice. Boy, is that confusing or what? I was telling you, it's hard to say our own names, and now we've got the same name applied to three different things. Wait, wait a minute. Um, the SEC registered investment advisory firm and the principles of it are the same people that are the hosts of this radio program and the podcast. The, ho the radio program held the name before the SEC registered firm. But just because the firm is registered to give SEC registered, I mean, how many times can I say registered in that? Uh, investment advice doesn't mean we can do it on the air. In fact, it means we can't do it on the air because we don't know everybody listening. Presumably, that's a big presumption, isn't it? We might. There might not be anyone listening. Then we can give fiduciary investment advice to no one and charge for it. Wouldn't that be great? But we can't do that on the radio. There's privacy concerns. Obviously, we don't know everybody we're talking to. Uh, we don't know your specific circumstances, all that good stuff. Uh, and just because the firm's registered with the SEC does not mean that the SEC has some kind of a favorite child position for us. We are not even the redheaded child. We have no hair. So they are simply the regulatory institution to which we are beholden. 
uh, as we give advice. So we're not going to be giving advice on the air. Uh, if we're not giving advice, what are we doing? We, we said we're coaching. What is that? If not, Well, we're giving education. We're giving you some things that don't have to have to do with your specific location and circumstances, but rather how to read the map rather than how to get to a specific def destination. Educational. Um, let's see what else. Uh, it said it's educational. I said, we don't pay for this program. Uh, this is not paid commercial advertising. We also don't get paid for this program. We've been giving up our Saturday mornings for a quarter of a century plus to blather on on the radio uh, to a slowly shrinking audience base on AM radio and a slowly increasing audio base on the digital spectrums. What does that mean? Why or am, am I saying that? Because a lot of times when you turn on the radio or you pull up a podcast, it is an advertisement for a business. Uh, while we do get business because we do this program, that is not the purpose of the program. The purpose of the program is to educate a bunch of people that don't know nothing about nothing, including us. Uh, our lack of knowledge is far larger than our knowledge, and we're doing our Darned hardest, uh, may not be our best, but we're trying uh, to educate everybody, edumacate everybody when it comes to finance and economics. Uh, it's tilting at windmills. The Giants seem to keep winning uh, and the Miller seems to be really upset. Um, but you've got a final disclosure for us. And if that sounded like a normal disclosure, what I just said then I have totally failed. Well, I don't think you failed. This part will sound like a normal disclaimer, though, so this is good. I don't know. I'm not going to say it very fast, so it's well, really we, not a normal disclaimer. You have disclaimer. to lower the volume and speak as fast as you possibly can. And not, not going to do it. Not but going if you to slowed it, it down, it would sound like this. The information we present on this educational radio program has been obtained from sources we deem to be reliable. However, we make no warranty or guarantee as to the accuracy or completeness of said information. Though we do guarantee the incompleteness of unsaid and, and unread information. There. Now, uh, now that we have fully disclosed, disclaimed, and disinterested everyone, uh, we have a whole bunch of stuff to talk about. Uh, the very first one, as is tradition, is from Inquisitor John who traditionally asks us questions. And the questions that he asks uh, this time have to do with the treasury market, the U.S. Bond, uh, debt market, the debt of the United States government. And his question, subject is treasury buyers, and he's got a picture of an article from the Wall Street Journal, the paper version. There's a digital picture. It's uh, titled, Big Influx of T-Bells Threatens Volatility. And uh, he dives into a very specific question in the article. The article is talking about um, the calamity that we avoided. The debt ceiling was raised. But in the process of getting to that debt ceiling raise, we went about six months, so about five full months, of not being able to borrow money at the United States government. Which means that they went and they found every penny they could find that already existed in their coffers and they scooped it out and they spent it. So all of the accounts are empty. There's some mothballs and some cobwebs in a couple of them, but the rest of them have nothing. They are thoroughly swept out. The vacuum cleaner that was used to suck them out got all the dust bunnies. We got to fill those back up. A lot of the 
accounts that were drained to pay for other things were things that we've said we're going to do, like road projects and uh, uh, contract money to large defense contractors, things like that, that were either put on hold or the balance of the money, which is coming out in monthly increments, there's not enough money in there to pay the next one. So where do we get the money? Well, we've been using the revenue. Revenue's been coming in, and we went through April, which is the big month for revenue for the U.S. government. People pay a lot of taxes in April, and so you get this big bulge in our budget of non-borrowing because we got all this other money coming in. Now we got to borrow, and we got to borrow a lot, like a trillion dollars. Yes, that's with a T, a trillion dollars. That is a lot of zeros. Just count them. There's nine zeros in a billion. There are 12 zeros we're talking about here that has to be borrowed just to get back to even. And when that occurs, that causes interest rates to go up. If everybody wants to borrow money to buy a house at the same time, but there's still only as much money available as there was before to loan to houses, that's a supply and demand thing. It means the people that are giving or loaning the money can charge a higher interest rate. And the article in the Wall Street Journal is talking about that. Hey, the U.S. Treasury might have to borrow at really stupid interest rates because interest rates are already high. And when they borrow at stupid interest rates, it's going to be expensive. So John's question is about one of the facets in that story uh, that banks aren't doing a lot of that purchasing right now because they are on the hook for a bunch of loans from the Fed to fill up their longer-term maturity stuff. And and I realize that's a complicated subject. We won't get too deep into it. We've talked about it in the past. Banks are not jumping forward to buy up the treasuries, to loan the United States government money right now. Big chunk of that, when SVB failed, it was because they held too much treasuries and a long maturity. To get out of that hole, they had to borrow a bunch of money from the Federal Reserve, and it's got a higher interest rate than what they're earning. So... They've got problems there. So the banks aren't there to buy up all this new debt that the government's about to release. And the article says, well, the money market positions are stepping in to those roles now, and they're buying up that debt. They're loaning the government money. And the direct quote that he's got circled, that would be a best case scenario, according to to strategists. Money market funds could step up as the primary financers of this round of bond uh, issues. Um, and his question which is a very, very, uh, deeply faceted question in that larger subject. It's already a complicated subject. He says, what are the impacts of banks versus money market funds buying all these treasuries? And you've got your hand well, raised. I've got an answer. Oh, I've got an answer. It's probably not right. The answer is 42. Okay. Sorry. No, back to you. Well, there've been several articles recently about the fact that there have been insufficient tre- short-term treasuries being offered by the treasury for the rush of money into money market funds. So the money market funds have been turning to the Federal Reserve to the repo market in the Federal Reserve, uh, actually a reverse repo market, which is really weird, to get the interest rates that they're paying because there's this flood of money that's been going into money market funds. By the way, out of banks into money market funds. Um 
because they're offering a higher interest rate. Short-term interest rates are high. Uh, presuming that you're correct, and I think you probably are, that this rush of new borrowing from the Treasury will continue to raise short-term interest rates, there will probably be a greater rush of money into money market funds. And I think the money market funds are not going to have any trouble soaking up the additional um the additional borrowing that the treasury wants to do because there are literally trillions of dollars of of money in money market funds right now and and, and an interesting fact that coming out of the 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 great financial crisis that we had the the great recession as it was called money market funds <clears throat> many of them are now required to borrow only federal they can, they can only borrow federal obligations unless they disclose that they're not doing that. And they don't have to set aside reserves if they borrow treasury securities or borrow from the Federal Reserve. I say borrow. They don't borrow from them. They actually loan to the Federal Reserve and the, and the treasury. So I think the money market funds are going to have uh, no problem at all soaking this up. Uh, I think they're going to just gobble it up very, very quickly and very, very efficiently. And I think that the pundits are just worried about something that's probably not going to be a problem. The long-term implication of this is different, though, because what that means is that because more money is flowing into money market positions and the money market positions are offering a higher interest rate generally than most banks. So those are the trends right now. Mm -hmm. That means more money will flow into money market positions. And I'm going to give a weird analogy here, a parallel. We've talked in the past about how when oil prices go up, sometimes it takes a while for it to hit the pump. And when oil prices go down, sometimes it takes a while for it to be at the pump. When you're pumping gas, wait, I know oil prices are down. Why am I still paying more? And that has a lot to do with the gas station that you are frequenting. They have a tank in the ground. And the tank in the ground holds gas that they already purchased, not today's price. They purchased that at some previous price. And gas stations that don't have a lot of customers, they don't, or they have a really big tank, can keep oil prices or gas prices down for longer. But the more they do that, the more people come and use their gas. So they drain through that tank quickly. But they were able to keep the price down. The same thing is true when the price is up. If they have a big tank and they bought it at a high price, it's going to take them longer to lower the price because they bought that inventory at a high price. Now they got to sell it to you at a high price, even though prices are down now. That's happening at the bank right now. The bank is locked into these longer term interest rates that are much lower and it's taking them a long time to adjust because they have to get to the maturity on all these long-term issues. They have to get through their tank, and their tank is really big. So money is fleeing the banks to go to the money markets, and the money markets had much shorter-term uh, maturities in a lot of their products. So their tanks were smaller. If you follow that analogy, it's the same here. Their tanks are smaller. They were able to drop the price faster or raise their interest rate faster. What does that mean long-term? Long-term, there's less money at the banks. And banks are still the primary place that we get mortgages. If there's less money at the bank, they have to raise interest rates on their mortgages. And what we've been seeing over the past month or so is interest rates on 30-year on mortgages have been increasing. So... It's going to make it more expensive to get a mortgage because more of the money from the federal government 
is being loaned by money markets than banks. So that's a that's a extrapolation that is a year away from now and increasing into the future. It will equalize again as things come back to rationality in the interest rate area. That irrationality is coming directly from the Fed and how they're selling bonds on the market and where they're selling it. Uh, And we can see that directly on the Fed balance sheet versus the interest rates as we go around. So, I mean, it's, it's all written on the wall. The Fed's the one doing this, but it means that money markets are taking on a much larger role as a depository institution for even much smaller investors than they used to be. And banks, which used to be Main Street, everybody has a bank account, it may get to the point in the next couple of years that everybody just has a money market account and it goes online and they do check writing or debit card doing on their money market position. This could be a massive shift or it could all go back to nothing. <laughs> How's that? Well, there's an interesting contrast going on out there about money and it's it's sticky. Um, Wells, okay, Chase, which is a big bank and a lot of people use it. Otherwise known as J.P. Morgan Chase. Yes, but this is called Chase Bank. Right, um, it's a subset of J.P. Morgan Chase. In its savings is offering 0.01% interest. Woohoo! Bank of America, 0.01% interest. Wells Fargo, 0.15% interest. But if you start looking for other banks, there's a lot of them that are offering 4.85% interest right now. And people are not moving their money from the very low interest positions to the higher interest positions for reasons that have a lot to do with stickiness and convenience. Uh, For instance, we have a bank that we use that's paying a very low interest rate. And we have a series of accounts there and we have a loyal long-term relationship with that bank. And it would be a real pain to move our money someplace to get a higher interest rate on it. So there's this tendency of people to leave their money at low interest rates in banks that is playing out big. As a matter of fact, over the last couple of weeks, instead of deposits fleeing the banks, banks, particularly small to intermediate sized banks, which there was a lot of concern about recently, are seeing deposits increasing, more money coming into the banks. People are still in the position where when they put money in the bank, they're more secure. It's kind of like Will Rogers said, people are more concerned about the return of their money than they are return on their money. Uh, and I think for some reason or another, people are definitely keeping their money in low interest positions in banks. Now, if inflation continues to be serious, eventually people will start moving their money. But for right now, the banks are flush with money uh, and there's more money coming in. And that was one of the concerns we had a couple of weeks ago when, uh, or a few weeks ago, when Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank, uh, among others, failed is people were pulling their money out and putting it someplace else. But it stabilized very nicely. And very, I, I would say that I don't understand why people leave their money at 0.01% when they could be earning 4.85% except for the fact that we're doing it too. And it's, it's a real administrative pain to move your money from a low interest position at a bank to a higher interest position. The thing you want from the bank is that, you know, we've got debit cards at that bank. We've got checking accounts at that bank. Uh, it's a real pain to move money around. And on that, people don't do it. And on that note, um, bank deposits prior to the pandemic. Uh, this is commercial bank deposits. So, what that means is what you would think of as a bank deposit. We're not talking about CDs. We're not talking about money market positions. This is just money you have in your bank accounts, gathered all together across the United States. 
Prior to the pandemic, February 5th, there was about $13.3 trillion. This is all Federal Reserve data. Um, and you can tell we're nerds because we know Fred. Fred is the economic data portal from the St. Louis Federal Reserve. And um, so $13.3 trillion prior to the pandemic. At the top of the pandemic, in just in banks again, not CDs, not the other stuff, not money markets, $18 trillion was sitting in there. So there's a difference of $5 trillion. A, bun a bunch of that was stimulus. Some of it was people just cutting way, 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 way back on other things. Uh, so there's a combination of lots and lots and lots of stuff that caused us to hang on to money more. We were scared. And that was right around April of 2022. So it was a, a little over a year ago. We're now sitting at about $17.3 trillion. So we're still $4 trillion up from what we were then. And when you calculate inflation, that's still way above the inflation growth during that time period. We have more in savings today, even calculating for inflation, by a lot than we did prior to the pandemic. And this is part of the reason why we're not in a recession right now. We've been able to spend money, and we were spending really fast heading into March, and we're kind of slowing down now. And uh, so our deposits are rising in, in the different institutions. So there's kind of interesting pictures there in a very boring and nerdy way for those of you that want to go to some barbecue and talk about Fred and how many cash deposits we had before and after the pandemic and all that good stuff. But um, the, all of that is to come back to say that the money area of our economy looks to be pretty strong and healthy right now. I don't see more bank um, failures on the horizon. And, and that's, that's a pretty good note. The bank failures that we had were the ones that were most egregiously reaching for the highest rates during the the pandemic and just before. And, uh, and this is something we have said for years. If you're looking around across same products and one of you, one of them is significantly cheaper or offering a significantly better interest rate, there's something wrong and look at it before you jump in there. The Puerto Rican banks for years had interest rates, FDIC insured, interest rates that were way above the other FDIC rates. And then all the banks in Puerto Rico fell down. Uh, it, when you have to give a higher interest rate, it's because there's other issues going on. I mean, it's true if you're buying a car and you have to pay a higher interest rate, it's probably because there's something wrong with your credit. Same's true with a bank. If they're offering a much higher interest rate than a similar bank, look at it carefully. Make sure that you're well insured. There. Man, we've talked about nothing but the most uninteresting interest stuff. Um, we have, we, I mean, we were touching on China's ish, issues with imports and exports and it's going into full open mode, but in a much more restrictive situation than it was. And I, I kind of want to bring this up that the pandemic has now been going for quite some time, that the changes that we experienced in 2020 as radical changes still have a lot of carryover to today. And some of that can be seen right now on the West Coast at the ports. So as we said last month, our supply chain issues that were causing so much of the inflation that we were seeing over the past three years or so, two and a half years or so, um, well, they're kind of drying up and going away. The supply chains have been fundamentally shifted and we're back in 
place and ready to go, except that now we look over at the port of LA and several of the other Western ports that are big import facilities, and we've got lines waiting again. It's like a week long. It's not months and months long like it was before. Usually well-scheduled stuff comes in same day still, but there's still a line waiting out there. What is that from? Why are suddenly we seeing this again? What is that about? And will it lead to great inflation? And what we're seeing in that line out there is a backlog of orders mostly. There's obviously a lot of new stuff as well. But it's a backlog of orders that we couldn't receive during lockdown. There's some of that stuff that's three years old waiting to come in. And some of that stuff is ordered very recently. That's what's causing the kind of the log jam at the ports again is a bunch of stuff that was already ordered and paid for sometimes multiple years before. Uh, they're occurring now. And this is kind of the last sweep up of the supply chain issues. The reason why this lump of goods is not even bigger, that this big bulge of exports from China imports into the United States is not larger, is what we were talking about at the end of last hour. Our supply chains have restructured. We're not as dependent on China as we were. It was fully more, it was almost a quarter of all of our imports in 2018 came from China. And now it's, it's at a, a much lower level. You know, it is below the Eurozone. The EU and, and the UK make up 20% of our imports. Um, Asia, not including China, is 25% of our imports. Where back in 2018, China was at 22% and the rest of Asia was at 20%. So about half of our imports were coming from Asia. When we look today, about 25% from Asia external to China and then another 15% from China. And you'll find that our uh, overall imports from Asia are slightly higher than they were before, China included. We've just moved it around. It's not like we're suddenly pushing a lot more stuff on EU and UK. If we look back pre-pandemic, they're about where they were. We haven't suddenly increased or decreased there. Mexico has increased. Prior to the pandemic, they were about 13% of our imports, and now they're about 15% of our imports. So you don't see a massive drop there or a massive jump there. Canada's about 14% of our imports, and it used to be about 12% of our imports. So we're obviously getting more from Canada, more from Mexico, a, a lot more from Asia outside of China. That's the big change. So what we're talking about there is India, Thailand, Vietnam. Those are the three names that keep popping up in where factories are moving in the Asian area. But I would expect to see larger imports from Canada and Mexico based on our factory um, construction that we've been paying for in Mexico and Canada. We expect those numbers to go up. And they're certainly higher than they were. They're just not drastically higher than they were. Combined between Mexico and Canada, they're making up about uh, 5% more of our imports than they were before, which is significant, but not considering that 
from China, we were at 22% of our imports and now we're at 15. There's a seven percentage point drop there, which is, that's a massive change. And you can absolutely see that in the way the Chinese economy looks today and will look going forward. This, the, the trade war was the beginning of that, but our trade with China increased prior to the pandemic during the trade war. It also decreased, It was, but it didn't increase or decrease drastically. It stayed about where it was prior to the trade war. Then the pandemic hit and we realized we can't trust them to deliver the products that we're paying for. That result is what's led to the factories moving. It's, it's one thing to say, hey, the trade war worked, didn't. There's no evidence that the trade war is the reason why we're leaving China. There is evidence that the free market looked at China as an unreliable partner and the trade war didn't make it better. So it gave an extra incentive to leave China. Uh, I think all of that kind of wraps up my China talk for here. There's a lot of impending badness in the Chinese economy that they haven't dealt with yet. And they are certainly not inspiring creativity and innovation in anything except one area. And that's one that we can talk about together or their, their electric vehicle design and production. Um, it's subsidized by the government, but they're making some pretty drastic leaps as far as the sales that they're doing. They have outpaced Japan as the largest exporter of automobiles. And that's just happened. So just Little bits of data that are random but not trivial. Um, and we're about out of time for this hour. So if you would like to talk to us off the air, we actually give investment advice at the fiduciary level and portfolio management that comes with it to people of relatively high net worth. And our uh, firm's phone number is uh, locally. 254 Nine four seven eleven eleven, or you can reach that same voicemail on the weekends, real life people during the week at one eight hundred nine one four seven five two six. That's eight hundred nine fourteen plan. You can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com, where you will see our made for radio faces and our wonderful staff. Uh, you can uh, read our newsletter there. Sign up for it; it comes out every Friday. You can uh, uh, listen to our radio programs going back lots of years. You can, you can find the podcast wherever you find podcasts. You can contact us through the contact form or through email at jeff at tpwc.com or jake at tpwc.com. Until next hour, this has been The Personal Wealth Coach. Thank you very much for listening.